First Peter chapter 3, we'll look at verses 8 through 17 this morning. I once heard a story of a missionary who was serving in Singapore, and he was just learning the language there. And he, so he went to the supermarket, and he was trying to get some food, and as he approached the man behind the counter at the supermarket, he said, I want to buy some, and I'm going to do my best to say this, Bula Bungia. And what he was trying to say was, I want to buy some chicken, but because of he didn't understand the tone and some of the language, what he ended up saying was, I want to buy some human feces. Now, that's a mistake, but one of the things that was interesting was um, they actually sell that over there in supermarkets for fertilizer. So as he told this man, I want to buy some human feces, thinking that he says, I want to buy some chicken, the man nods and goes to the back, and he comes out not with uh, a bag of chicken, but a bag of guess what? And this is what this man had to leave with. And so what I'm trying to say in all of this is, the way, what you say and how you say it is intrinsically important. What you say and how you say it is intrinsically important. If you are married, you should know that by now. Amen? If you are married, you should know it's not just what you say, but how you say it. And for those of you who don't know that, you probably have not been married very long. And if you don't learn that soon, you probably won't be married very long. And so it's important that you understand what you say and how you say it. God has given us a voice and an ability to communicate, to present both grace and truth. And oftentimes, if we're honest, we use our words to do the opposite. Honestly, if all of us in some point in our life has been guilty of this. And not only that, that most likely all of us have been a result of someone doing that to us. When we are recipients of this, it can truly hurt us. Most of the hurt that we're, that we face, that we're faced with in our lives has to come with someone saying something to us that wounded us. And so whoever made this comment, um, sticks and stones may break my bones, but words may never hurt me. I I think that person was single, all right? I think that person was single because that person's greatly deceived. Because sticks and stones may break my bones, but words may never hurt me is absolutely untrue. The wounds that you face from physical pain, you can heal in a shorter period of time from the wounds that you face from someone verbally hurting you. And so this absolutely matters. And so what I want to do this morning is I want to talk to two different types of people here. I want to talk to those of you who need to be more cautious with what you say and how you say it. But I also want to talk to those of you who, how you might respond when someone hurts you with their words. Peter, the writer of 1 Peter, was a man who actually went through both. If you know the Gospels and understand Matthew, Mark, and Luke Luke and John, you watch Peter's life and the way that he interacted with people. Peter was often a very blunt person. He often lacked the skill of being tactful in what he said. Peter would often say harsh words to people. 
But what happened was later on, he saw Jesus Christ live a perfect and sinless life. He saw Jesus Christ die on the cross for his sins. He saw Jesus Christ resurrect from the grave. And before Jesus Christ ascended to heaven, he told Peter that he would be uh, his witness and go and share the gospel to the world. After all of those things happened that Peter witnessed and saw and seeing the risen Christ, Peter was then filled with the Holy Spirit. And when Peter became filled with the Holy Spirit, he became someone who was very tender, who was very honest and still displayed that skill of grace or truth, but also he would display grace. And not only that, but Peter became the recipient of people saying nasty things about him. Peter preached this gospel that uh, the world hated. And many people fought Peter. Even the religious elite would say harsh things about him, untrue things about him. And so Peter has lived on both sides. Peter's been the one who says the harsh thing, and Peter's been the one who's been the recipient of the harsh thing or the wrong thing. And what happens in Peter as he began to plant more churches and plant more churches around the gospel, he began to see some of his own dear friends that became believers in Christ and witnessed the risen Christ and had the Holy Spirit, just like Peter had the Holy Spirit, he began to see them be harmed by words as well. And this is the the people that he's talking to in 1 Peter. He's talking to a group of people who are suffering for the sake of the gospel. And they've been people who have been bullied. They've been people who have been slandered. They've been people being, being falsely accused and put down by those who hate the gospel that they preach. And so what Peter does is he begins to encourage them. He begins to encourage them to stay faithful to the gospel, but then he challenges them and how they speak to one another and how they might respond when others say negative things about them. So 1 Peter 3, we'll start in verse 8. He says, finally, all of you, believers in Christ, all of you, he tells them this, have unity of mind, sympathy, Brotherly love, a tender heart, and a humble mind. He says, unity of mind, sympathy, brotherly love, tender heart, and a humble mind. First, notice notice the first thing he says. He says, unity of mind. You see this idea throughout the New Testament. Many authors of the New Testament, they are writing to the, the churches and telling them to have the same mind. And most of the time, this is a, a good situation for the church when they're, when they're suffering. He's saying, I want you to have the same mind even while you are suffering. This is why we know suffering can be used for good. Not that God is responsible for our suffering, but God can use our suffering to help us grow closer to Christ. But not only closer to Christ, God can use suffering to help us grow closer to one another as believers in Christ. And so as they're suffering, he's saying, I want you to have the same mind. I want you to be on the same page about furthering the gospel. Think about a family who goes through the loss of a loved one. What often happens when a family goes through loss, they're unified. Even when they may have faced some kind of disagreement in the past, what often happens is that disagreement becomes almost insignificant. Because now they have the same mind. They're suffering together. And so what Peter is wanting these believers to do, he's wanting them to suffer well together. And he says, as you suffer well together and you have the same mind, he says, he he lists off four things. I want you to have sympathy. 
I want you to have brotherly love. I want you to have a tender heart. And I want you to have a humble mind. First of all, let's look at sympathy. Typically, when people understand sympathy, they have undergone one or two things. Number one, suffering themselves. And number two, humility in their own sin. For instance, when the writer of Hebrews talks about Jesus as the great high priest, he describes Jesus as one who is able to sympathize. There's that word, sympathize with our weaknesses. And the writer of Hebrews goes on to say that he's able to sympathize with our weaknesses because Jesus Christ went through and undergone the same temptation that all of us has gone through. So the reason why Jesus is able to sympathize with our weaknesses is because he too has been tempted. He too has over, over, um, undergone the, the pains and sufferings of this world. When people lack sympathy... They typically lack two things, experience and struggle and a lack of awareness of their own sin. When I was single with no kids, I hated going to restaurants with a high chair nearby. Like if I was sitting at a restaurant, I wanted to have a conversation without screaming in the background, right? And so what I would do is just go, oh, my gosh, I just got to get, I wish they would just take that kid out of here. It's just driving me crazy. I just want to eat my pizza. I know I'm not Chuck E. Cheese, and I asked for it, but I'm just saying they need to get this kid out of here, right? And then what happens? Well, then I get married, and then we have kids. And then I'm starting to live, I'm eating my food, and then our kid's doing the same thing. And we're not at Chuck E. Cheese, right? Because that place is hell on earth. Why would anyone go there, right? And so what happens is I began to start to deal with it myself. And as I deal with the struggle myself, what happens? I gain sympathy. So now my kids are older. I'm at a restaurant, screaming kid in the back with a single person at the table. Single person at the table is cringing. They're like, man, can you hear that? No, I can't even hear it don't even hear it anymore. Why can't I hear it anymore? Because I've gained sympathy. I understand. I'm like, yeah, this is tough. This is difficult. I am with you, brother. Don't go to Chuck E. Cheese. That's a mistake. But I'm with you, brother. And so this is what happens when we gain sympathy. We understand it because we've gone through it. We understand the awareness of our own sins. So we understand other people's sin struggles. We understand suffering. So we understand the suffering of others. If you've had a loss of a loved one, you can relate to someone else who's had a loss of a loved one. And you can, have, you can be sympathetic toward them. And so Paul or Peter is telling them, be sympathetic. He also tells them to have brotherly love. This is the language of a family. I want you to see other believers as members of your family. It's like this. Think about the reputation that you want to see of your own family, of your wife and your children. What do you want their reputation to be? And he's saying, Use, have this brotherly love means we want the reputation of other believers to look like Christ. And so we want to communicate about them as someone who's redeemed by Christ. This is my brother in Christ. This is my sister in Christ. Their reputation to me matters. So sympathy, brotherly love. He says tender-hearted. 
Paul communicates this actually in Romans chapter 12. It's very similar to what Peter is saying. He says in Romans 12, verse 14, Bless those who, who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all, if possible. So far as it depends on you, live peacefully with all. Part of being tender-hearted, friends, is being able to share the emotions with those around you. When it comes to your brother or your sister in Christ, when that person, maybe that you even have a disagreement with, when you're in a quarrel with, when that person gets a raise or a promotion, are you, is your tendency to rejoice or is it to be jealous? Paul says, rejoice with those who rejoice. Paul says, weep with those who weep. Mourn with those who mourn. If you see that person, maybe that is a believer in Christ, and they fall and they struggle, do you rejoice or do you weep? Do you mourn? This is the tenderness that he's calling us to have. Be tender-hearted. When I see injustice, I tend to want justice. Everyone wants justice until it's toward us. And he's saying, listen, brothers and sisters in Christ, we look at each other and we shouldn't want each other to fall. We should want each other to have victories in our lives and we should rejoice when we have victories. And when those around us fall, we should mourn. So he says, sympathy, brotherly love, tenderhearted, and then he says, a humble mind. What's a humble mind? With someone who's really free. Prideful people are not free. Prideful people are not free because prideful people live in fear. They live in fear because they are afraid of someone seeing who they really are. So having a humble mind means that you aren't afraid to be seen for who you really are. It means that you have nothing to hide. You're okay with showing your weakness. Many times when people slander others, it's because they want others to look worse than themselves. And if they can make others look worse than themselves, they kind of feel better because they aren't seen for who they really are. Having a humble mind means that you are transparent and that you are free from hiding. And so, so Peter brings all these together. Sympathy, brotherly love, tenderhearted, humble mind. This is how we treat one another. How we treat one another is incredibly important, friends. How we use our words to communicate to each other is overly emphasized in the Bible. And what we do in Christian culture bothers me when it comes to our words. Because what we do in Christian culture, we often put sins on the scale. Okay, at least it's not as bad as adultery. At least it's not bad as this sexual sin of pornography. At least it's not bad as murder. And then we look at way down here on the list, low on the list. It's just gossip. It's just slander. It's not a big deal. Let me tell you the danger in that. The danger is we minimize something that scripture emphasizes. And by doing so, we sin without even recognizing the weight of it. 
And we do it with silly things like Christian culture. Before we gossip, we always say, hey, bless this person's heart, but let me say what I want to say. As if that's going to be a free card to do that. You know, you know, I love them, right? But let me slander them real quick. But I'm praying for them. So I'm praying for them. Be praying for them. But let me tell you all their nasty stuff that I haven't talked to them about. And so that's what we do. We minimize it and we find colorful Christian words to kind of trump card it and make it packaged really nicely so it doesn't look like gossip. It doesn't look like slander, but it absolutely is. I know no one's struggling with that this morning, of course. But your tongue is a dispenser for either life or death. And since we have a tendency to minimize the sins that we use with our words, I want to show you how emphasized it is in Scripture. Proverbs 18, 21 he says, death and life are in, are in the power of the tongue, and those who love it will eat its fruits. Proverbs 16, 16 through 21. There are six things that the Lord hates. Seven are an abomination to him. Haughty eyes, a lying tongue, and the hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that devises wicked plans, feet that make haste to, to run to evil, a false witness to who breathes out lies, and one who sows discord among brothers. How many of these, how many of these are, are sins that we commit with our words? Most of them. And what does the writer of Hebrews say, or, or Proverbs say? He hates them. The Lord hates them. Proverbs 12, verse 18. There is one whose rash words are like uh, sword thrust, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. Truthful lips endure forever, but a lying tongue is but a moment. Deceit is in the heart of those who devise evil, but those who plan peace have what? Joy. Proverbs 16, 27. A worthless man plots evil, and his speech is like a scorching fire. A dishonest man spreads strife, and a whisperer separates close friends. Proverbs 13, verse 3. Whoever guards his mouth preserves his life. He who opens wide his lips comes to ruin. Proverbs 17, verse 28. If you're not convicted already, I feel like I could just throw one more in there, right? Even a fool who keeps silent is considered wise when he closes his lips. He is deemed intelligent. And I could go on and on and on throughout the book of Proverbs. There's some I could highlight in the Psalms. But let me just show you two more New Testament passages. And maybe these are probably the most popular when it comes to our tongue. The first one I'm going to do is Ephesians chapter 4, where it tells us not to have corrupt communication coming out of our mouth. Most of the time we think that's about saying four-letter words and cussing and, and saying the Lord's name in vain and all those things. Now, certainly we encourage you not to use the Lord's name in vain. However, it's not about cussing. It's actually about gossip and slander. Ephesians chapter 4, verse 29. Let no corrupting talk come out of your mouth, but only such as good for what? Building up as it fits the occasion that it may give grace to those who hear. Verse 31. Let all bitterness, wrath, anger, clamor, slander be put away from you 
along with all malice. Be kind to one another, tender-hearted. There's that word again. Tender-hearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. This is Paul's challenge of what it means to let corrupt speak come out of our mouths. It's how we communicate about and to one another. James chapter 3 verse 2 is the other prominent place that we see this in the New Testament. He says, for we all stumble in many ways. And if anyone does not stumble in what he says, he's a perfect man, also able to brittle his whole body. If we put bites, bits into our mouth of the horse, so they obey us, we guide their whole bodies as well. Look, all, look at the ships also. Though they are large and are driven by strong winds, they are guided by a very small rudder wherever the will of the pilot directs. So also the tongue is a small member, yet it boasts of great things. How great a forest is set ablaze by such a wild fire. And the tongue is a fire a world of unrighteousness. The tongue is set among our members, staining the whole body, setting on fire the entire course of life, and set on fire by hell. Friends, for us to minimize the sins that we commit with our words would be to minimize a sin that Scripture continually warns us against. So let us be cautious with what we say. Let us not break fellowship with others and with God by the words that we say. And it's inevitable that we will fail in this, in this way, but there's grace here. The good news is that we have the gospel. The good news is that Jesus Christ, who died on the cross gives us the Holy Spirit by repenting and believing the gospel. And so we can become like Peter. Peter, who would use harsh words and harsh language, is now a man who's redeemed by the gospel. And by being redeemed by the gospel, he does still fail and fall into the sins of the words that he uses with his mouth. But there's grace there. There's grace there. There's grace here, friends. And so all of us are guilty of this at some point in our life. But not only that, all of us are recipients of things said bad about us. So how do we respond? Well, Peter talks about that as well. First Peter chapter 3, verse 9. Do not repay evil for evil or reviling for reviling, but on the contrary, bless. For, to, for this you were called that you may obtain a blessing. For whoever desires to love life and, and see good days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. Let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him seek peace and pursue it. For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. But the face of the Lord is against those who do evil. Verses 10 through 12, when he talks about the desire to love and love life and see good days, he's, he's actually quoting from Psalm 34. And the, and the psalmist is communicating the, the big idea of not returning evil for evil, but overcoming evil for good. And this is really hard to do, friends. I'm, I'm a redhead. I like retaliation. I like justice. I want to win. 
But he's saying, don't return evil for evil, overcome evil for good. And the number one way I, I believe that we can start to wrestle with this is, is just look at the person and work of Jesus Christ. Did Jesus return evil for evil? If he did, we'd all be doomed. If he returned our wickedness with wickedness put back on us, we would all have no chance of salvation. What did Jesus do? He returned evil, not with evil, but he returned evil with grace through dying on a cross for our sins. Guilty he was, or innocent he was on the cross. He took on the wrath of God for us. This is what Christ did for us. But doing good is often difficult because in a general rule, our culture does not function that way when harm is done to us. We like to lash back. We like to fight back. We're told that. We see it on social media. Somebody hurts somebody, we lash back. And it feels good for a brief moment, but is it ever rewarding? It's not. I learned this lesson again not long ago. There's a business here in town that my family and I would go to and... um, we were, we, every time we'd go, this lady at the front desk was always so mean to us. And like, you can be mean to me. Like, I'm ugly. I get it. You don't want to be nice to me. But my wife and my boys, they're just beautiful people, right? So when I walk in, you're like mean to them. I'm like, what's your problem? How could you be mean to, to my family? They're so sweet, right? You're so mean to these people. And so every time we go, we ask simple questions. And the lady would say, well, if you would read this and just really snarky. And so, I, you know, I'd start to get flustered. And I, when I get mad, like my, my jaw starts to click. And Jess is like, your jaw's clicking. We got to go. Like, that means we got to get out of here. Ben's going to say something. And so, man, I just, I, I was short-lived. I just could not handle being around this one lady. And so we left that day, and we, we were like, man, I don't know if we should go back. It's just a mean lady. And so Jess and the kids went back without me. I was working in the office that day, and I'd already had, like, a tense day. And so Jess called me, and she was upset. She's like, that lady was mean again. I asked these simple questions. I tried to be super kind, you know, and she was even kind of mean to Finn. I was like, you're mean to Finn? Who's mean to Finn? He's such a sweet guy. How can you be mean to Finn? And then, man, I was worked up. So I did the thing that every good Christian does. I looked at Google and looked at their reviews. And then I looked at Yelp and I looked at their reviews. And every, every single comment that was negative, lady up front, rude, lady up front, rude. It was like eight or so comments. And so then I did what I shouldn't have done, which is to call her. I said, hey, were you just meeting? Oh, yeah, yeah, your wife. And I said, yeah. Have you ever read Google? Have you read Yelp? Here's what it says about you. It says that you stink at your job. And you should change your attitude because we're not going back again. And then I hung up. And I look across from me and Todd and Josh are sitting across the table and they're like, hey, yeah. (laughs) Hey. I was like, oh, I'm sorry. And they're like, yeah. And so I walk in the office. I felt good when I, you don't hang up phones like that anymore. You hang up like this, by the way. I hung up the phone, you know. (laughs) And then this person called the Holy Spirit 
begin to deal with me? Ben, what results did you just get? It's not like I'm hearing this audibly, but I'm feeling this conviction in my heart. What reward was that? It was a reward to feel good for a moment, but was that reward lasting? Did it play into eternity? Did it further the gospel? No, it didn't. So when we retaliate in whatever way by using the words that we use, does it further the gospel? Does it give you a reward beyond just feeling gratified that we told someone off? It doesn't, friends. There is no reward in that. But can I just tell you, as a believer in Christ, that the relationships that you have, that you want to be deep, they're never going to be perfect. At some point in any relationship that you have, whether it be a friend or specifically a spouse, it's not going to be perfect. It's always going to have some level of conflict if it grows deep. And in the depths of that conflict, how will you respond, believer? Are you going to respond through retaliation or are you going to respond through grace? Peter is trying to challenge you to not repay evil for evil, but repay evil for good. And there's rewards there. And can I just tell you the conversations that I've had of people that have been close to me, that I have either hurt with my words or they've hurt me with their words. And instead of repaying evil for evil, we repay it with grace. We sit down and we have a conversation about what I may have said or what they have maybe said to me. And I don't come as a person to say, okay, let me meet with you to tell you why I'm right and why you're wrong. No, I come to that person to be an agent of peace. And when I'm an agent of peace, what ends up happening, and they're an agent of peace, what ends up happening is reconciliation is possible. Grace is possible. And then what happens is the same thing that happens in the text. Just like a family who goes through the loss of a loved one, they're drawn together through that suffering that we just went through. We've grown closer together. There's greater trust. There's greater love. There's greater respect. And there's a least chance that it would be, that would happen again. And so this is why it's important, friends, to talk to people rather than about people. Because when we talk to people, not with the intention of the one being right, but being the agent of peace, we get the opportunity to see the reward. And it's worth it. It's not worth it to remain bitter. It's not worth it to return evil. And furthermore, it's not worth it to do these things because it completely disrupts unity for the gospel. Notice how Peter continues, verse 13. He says, now, is there to harm you. Now, now who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be, what's the word? Blessed. Have no fear of them. Do not, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect having a good conscience so that when you are slandered, he doesn't say if, when you are slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. 
Here's the thing. When, when people speak ill of us, it is rarely the injustice of them speaking ill of us that makes us angry. Most of the time, we're not angry at the injustice. We're angry because someone is attacking something that we are trying to desperately defend. And what is that? It's our reputation. It's our own reputation. So let me ask you a question. If you are secure about who you are in Christ, why should it matter what people say about you? If you are truly, genuinely walking in repentance and truly, genuinely striving to please and honor Christ, if you are living in community and are known by other grounded, solid believers, why should it matter if someone speaks ill of you? Notice the language of Peter. He says, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for good? He says, you should have no fear of them, nor be troubled by them. In your hearts, your number one goal, he says, is to honor Christ the Lord as holy. So listen, if you have good character, if you have integrity, no pun intended, let it speak for itself. Peter says to do that, when we do that, those who slander us will eventually be put to shame because our godly character will display itself for what it really is. And those who slander in a way that is untrue will eventually be exposed. So why should we defend ourselves to a fool? And by the way, if you have good character, we can't boast in that end of ourselves. It's all the grace of God. We have good character mainly because Christ chose not to repay evil for evil, but chose to repay evil for grace. And by doing so, we can trust Christ and believe in Christ, and we can become a new person. And when we become a new person, that is what people see in us. It's the new person that God has made you to be. And because he's made you that way, do you think he is going to allow your reputation to be shoddy? You think he's going to allow your reputation to be, um, it, um, to be distorted? No. Because it's him, it's his name that's promoted in your life. And he's not going to let his name be distorted. So who should we fear? Who should we fear? Verse 17, he says, it's better to suffer for, good, for doing good if it is for God's will than for doing evil. Peter's final encouragement in this section is reminding these believers that even if they're in conflict, that God is with them. There's a popular verse in the book of Philippians, and if you have a coffee mug, you probably or Christian coffee mug, you may have one of this verse on it. It says, rejoice in the Lord always, and again, I say rejoice. Very familiar, very familiar um, verse. And I love the verse because it's, an, it's a comforting verse, it's an encouraging verse, but here's the thing. It actually lands in an interesting context because the context of this verse in Philippians chapter 4 is Paul is trying to deal with two different ladies in the church who are disagreeing. And one of them's name is Yodia, and the other one's name is Sintice. Apparently they have some kind of disagreement. I don't know what the disagreement is. Maybe which, which, maybe it's which one who has the worst name. I have no idea. But they have this 
conflict. And Paul's saying, I want them to agree in the Lord. And as he says, agree in the Lord, this is when he jumps into verse 4. But I'm going to read verse 4 through 7. Verse 4 is, okay, these two ladies agree in the Lord. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. Okay, you're, you're, you're fighting, you're in conflict. You need to be reasonable. Everyone needs to see this. And then he makes this interesting statement. The Lord is at hand. I'll get to that in a moment. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything by prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Let your requests be known, made known to God. And the peace of God, which passes all understanding, will guide your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Notice the phrase, the Lord is at hand. The Lord is at hand even in your conflict, which means the Lord is present. Don't miss the meaning of this. It means that there is not a place absent from the presence of God. It means that he is reigning over the heavens and the earth. He is in charge of the cosmos. He has planned all things for the sake of his glory. And what's the context? Believers who are in conflict. He's saying, believer, in your conflict, know that God is at hand, that God is with you. And Paul says, believing that the Lord is at hand is what is going to give you peace. That passes all understanding. And so this morning, if you are in conflict with another believer or with another person, the hope that you have is that the Lord is at hand. And somehow and in some way, God can restore that conflict. And God wants to restore that conflict restore that conflict. And God can use that conflict because we believe in the rest of scripture for his, for your good and his glory. And that's good news. And so if you're in conflict this morning, you're hearing this text. What's the Lord teaching you right now? What is the Lord teaching you right now? Remember, your tongue is a dispenser for either life or for death. Perhaps you're, you're sitting here and you are minimizing the sin of slander. And the Lord is convicting your heart through his word to repent. And so this morning, would you repent? Would you look at the overwhelming warnings about how to use your words and not hurt others, but to bless others? And would you do that this morning? And friends, I'm going to warn you on this text again. If you're constantly guilty of slander and gossip and hurting other believers with your words, that's evidence that there's a deeper issue going on in your heart that you need to address and that you need to repent of. Maybe we be what Peter challenges the church to be, of humble minds, Would we see each other with brotherly love and and tenderness of our heart? Would we have sympathy to those around us? 
perhaps you are one who is slandered against. And your tendency is to repay that slander with slander. Repay evil with evil. Might I suggest to you, if that's you this morning, and I hate those things, I'm sorry. Might I suggest to you to look to Jesus? Might you look to Jesus as the example who didn't return evil for evil, but responded to our wickedness and grace? And might you do the same this morning? And if you're in conflict right now, would you trust that the Lord is at hand? Would you allow his spirit to move in your heart and now repent and trust him in whatever way that is necessary this morning? And friends, can I just say this? Might we do this urgently? Let us feel the weight of all of the New Testament writers challenging the churches to be of the same mind. And if we leave this place here and we're not in one accord, we will most likely not be a light in a dark place. But what makes us exiles is that we suffer together, and by suffering together, we repent together, we reconcile together. The unity of the same mind is what allows us to preach and proclaim the good news of the gospel. And I believe that Satan would love it today if we could just ignore these words of scripture and just push them back as something that has little or no significance. Or if we treated the sins that we commit with our words as a minor sin when scripture says the opposite. And so this morning, my hope is that we will repent, Integrity Church. God help us. Let's pray. Father, I pray, Lord, right now that the gospel would be.